0: Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. On the Logistics of Logistics, I talk to experts in logistics and transportation, warehousing, fulfillment, supply chain, and of course, technology. And during these interviews, I'm always the one asking the dumb questions. I ask the dumb questions so you don't have to. Today's topic is Flexible Warehousing with Flex CEO, Carl Siebricht. Guys listen up. This is a fantastic interview with the CEO and co-founder of Flex, and that's a Seattle-based company, F-L-E-X-E, and they do provide flexible warehousing. They provide flexible on-demand warehousing for some of the biggest brands in the world, and they're nine years old and they became a unicorn last year. One of the logistics unicorns we hear so much about, they have pioneered uh, a different kind of of warehousing, and it's obviously working. (laughs) So Carl is a fantastic guest. He has been there, done that, got the hat. So please listen up. But before we get to the interview, I want to tell you, small parcel shippers, listen up. I want to help you save 40% on your small parcel shipping. So if you're an e-commerce guy or you're a warehousing guy and you do a lot of e-commerce shipments, listen up. I know we're all used to using the big guys. You have UPS, you have FedEx, you might be able to also use uh, the Postal Service. And we really haven't had a choice until now. Well, we all know there's these good regional carriers out there, but very few people take advantage because they don't have that national reach. Well, they do now because my friends over at Tusk Logistics, that's T-U-S-K Logistics, put together technology that connects all these great regional carriers And regional carriers, by the way, have better pricing. They have better service in the regions they serve. And there's no reason not to use them now because now you can have national national reach with the regionals. And again, the guys over at Tusk Logistics, they have got great technology and they've also got negotiated rates, pre-negotiated rates with these small parcel carriers. So you get better service, big savings, and you get the Tusk technology that connects it all. And you get Tusk's great customer service. You're going to get better customer service with Ben Emrick and his team and uh, than you'll ever get at the big guy. So check them out. Tusk Logistics. That's T-U-S-K Logistics And right at the top, it says get started. Hit that button and save yourself 40%. So how's it going, Carl? It's going great, Joe. Thanks for having me. I am excited to talk to you. I love what you guys are doing. It's a new model that not too many people ever heard of 10 years ago, but it seems as if uh, you and a few other companies have popularized something that seemed to just pop up out of
1: nowhere. So Carl, please introduce yourself and your company and where you're calling from today. Great. Yeah. So my name is Carl Siebrecht. I am the founder and CEO of Flex. We are based in Seattle, which is where I live and work. We started this business about 10 years ago. In fact, we're going to have our 10th anniversary here in a few months. I know we're going to get to that, but uh, that's the the quick summary intro.
0: So what does Flex do besides flexible warehousing? Elaborate on that.
1: (laughs) I will. So we provide what we call programmatic logistics, technology powered programmatic logistics for big enterprise companies. So let me break that down. What do we mean by programmatic logistics. I'll frame this with a little bit of history. When we started the business, as I said, almost 10 years ago in 2013, we created a category, a new category that we called on-demand warehousing. And that was meant to signify how our solution was very different from traditional warehousing solutions, which were all asset-based. The fundamentally based in the context of a multi-year. When you say asset-based, you mean buildings, not trucks. <laughs> buildings, exactly. So fundamentally based in on top of warehouse leases that were typically multiple years long. And our model was fundamentally different in that it was a pay-as-you-go model. So our customers could tap into warehousing capacity on a pay-as-you-go flexible basis, or as we said, as we described it, an on-demand basis. Okay, So we created this thing to try, try and describe that difference, on-demand warehousing, which again, when we, when we started saying that word, nobody know, knew what it meant. Nobody ever heard of it. And then after building it for a while and getting some nice customers on board who saw the value, folks in the industry started to recognize that, including Gartner, who then ultimately wrote a report, hey, there's this new thing called on-demand warehousing. And lo and behold, Flex was the leader in the category, according to Gartner. And, and then along the way, there were other companies that followed suit because they recognized and their customers recognized the value in this model. So there were a bunch of companies who became on-demand warehousing companies. And then a couple of years ago, because we had expanded our capabilities and did much more than just sort of like core basic warehousing services, we expanded into distribution services, into e-commerce fulfillment services. We wanted to redefine this category and expand it to reflect our expanded solutions. And so we landed on programmatic logistics. Uh, and what that means is we provide a flexible layer of logistics solutions on top of our big enterprise customers' existing fixed infrastructure. So before we hit record,
0: I, I mentioned to you and I um, that you guys are kind of, correct me where I go, astray. you guys are kind of like a freight broker in it that if I went to a really good freight broker and said, I have a lot of freight, I need your help. And they say, yep, we can do that. We work with only the best carriers. We'll get the very best carriers on your business, on your loads. You go, perfect. And you're moving my lanes. Everything's going well. If any lane should go go bad, that freight broker is, without me even asking, is going to get rid of that carrier or add a new carrier to the mix. And you guys are kind of the
1: same, but you're doing it Warehouses, am I correct? Right, very, very similar. So, how does it work? So, we have a technology platform that we have built from scratch, and we have invested gobs of resources in building this over many, many years. It's a very expensive endeavor to take on building a tech platform.
0: We have to talk about that that latest round of funding that you got. Yeah,
1: we'll come back to that. Yeah. So, it starts with a technology platform. In the case of our business, the core of that platform is WMS. There are Tons of WMS systems out there, some great ones. I mean, hundreds, right? But none has been designed to meet our business model's needs and to reflect our value proposition of being fast and light and flexible. So our WMS is built with those design principles, meaning fast. It can be deployed in hours or days light it can it is quick to train it is quick to configure and scalable in the sense that we have one and only one platform all of our customers use the same instance all of our warehouse operators use the same instance so it's multi-tenant both ways so it starts again our our business model starts with that core wms platform okay the second component is a network of operator partners three pls who have buildings they have warehouse supervisors they have labor They have skills capabilities we have a very large network of operators hundreds of 3pls who provide the -the on-the-ground services for our customers and they do that via our technology platform the third component to make this model work is our logistics operations we have a team a big team of people who have worked on the customer side or the 3pl side of logistics so they operate as kind of a control tower uh, to manage the onboarding, the training, and the flow of services, the quality of services between our customers and our operating partners. So three components: tech platform, logistics network, and logistics operations team. That's how the model works.
0: I love it. You know, it's it's interesting. I've said this before on my podcast. Is every once in a while I get a warehouse and company call me and say, "Hey, we need to grow. Uh, can you help us grow?" And I always say, what WMS do you use? (laughs) That's That's my filter question. And they go, well, if we can get some business, we'll invest in a WMS. And I was like, I have no idea how you're doing it. By the way, I get the same phone call on the transportation side from small freight brokers who are not using a TMS. And at this day and age, it's hard to imagine how you're doing it. I guess they're doing it with Excel spreadsheets. But I've also heard from my friend, Shana, who is the, one of the founders at Rabat, the, the king of the packing station. He went and worked at six different warehousing companies across the country. And he said, you'd be amazed at how many are still using Excel spreadsheets, even when they have a WMS, he goes, it's just, it's something we understand, and he says they're not utilizing. If they have a WMS, they're not
1: fully utilizing it.
0: And he said, lots of Excel spreadsheets still,
1: right? And for our customer set, again, we serve many of the world's largest enterprises. You know, not- they won't take Excel spreadsheets. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, just the the sophistication, the 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 standards around quality, Um, you have to have a robust tech platform to understand and control the operation. Exactly. So, Carl, tell us a little bit about you before
0: you started this company. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Give us us the back of the napkin
1: on your career before you started Flex. And then I want to know, why did you start Flex? What hole did you see in the market? Sure, sure. So, I grew up in Houston, Texas. I'm a Texan. And then I went to college at Duke University. What is today? Today's March 14th. This is Duke time. <laughs> it is. It's Duke time, baby. There, 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 That's, there.
0: Not during football season, during basketball. March madness is Duke time. You got it. You got it. Hey, I, I got a lot of buddies who are Spart- I'm a Wolverine, Michigan Wolverine. But uh-huh. Most yeah. of my friends are Spartans and they can't stand that Duke has kind of owned them over the last decade,
1: <laughs> decade, 20 years, I should say. I think there are millions of basketball fans who would utter that same statement. Can't stand. Yeah. Oh yeah. They've owned everybody. Anyway. So, so what school there studied economics and Russian and I went to school on a Navy ROTC scholarship. Uh, to, pay for, to pay for Duke it was amazing. I'm still very grateful for that. And then served four years in the Navy. I was a diving officer. So that was pretty adventurous and, and fun, active. And it was a great four years, learned a lot, went to business school after that, and then went into consulting.
0: Where'd you go to business school? I went to business
1: school up at Dartmouth
0: in, nice. in New Hampshire.
1: Wow. Which was awesome. Then took a job at Bain and Company in Boston on the consulting side and worked in their M and A practice. So we advised private equity firms, helped them with due diligence on target companies, helped them with turnaround situations in their portfolios. Really incredible few years. Super. That's another great education over there. I'll say, super fast paced, very intense, amazing culture there. Super smart people, and then had an opportunity to come out to Seattle to work for a very early stage startup company. But back in those days, the 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 tech ecosystem was starting to bubble, and then and then the bubble burst, of course, a little bit a little bit later. But it was starting to bubble. It looked very exciting. It, sort of had a little bit of fomo I don't think that word that term existed back then but had a great opportunity to come out to Seattle and work for a pretty exciting company in what became known as the ad tech space when I started there no there, that wasn't a thing no one no one said the word ad tech it was just that consumer eyeballs were shifting from you know analog TV to websites and it was inevitable that, that media dollars advertising dollars would flow and I worked for one of the companies that built the first tech platform that sounds familiar from what I was just talking about tech platform to connect buyers and sellers of digital media, big companies like just take as an example, AT&T Wireless, they see all these eyeballs running around on these websites like Yahoo and and ESPN.com and they're trying to sell mobile phone subscriptions, right? So they want to get their ads in front of those digital users but they wanna advertise on New York Times and wallstreetjournal.com and ESPN and Yahoo and AOL, right? Hundreds of sites and through a tech platform, they could access these hundreds of sites. All those hundreds of sites could access a pool of buyers through that same platform. And so it helped scale and rationalize and define that market and ultimately became a huge category. Ad tech, I had a front row seat and, and was actively involved in helping to sort of make that happen. And it was a great journey. Yeah, If we didn't
0: have those ads, we wouldn't have been able to monetize the internet the way we did. That's exactly right. Now, for a long time, there was no money to be made anywhere. It was just like, well, why put up a web? How are you going to make any money? Well, People will see it.
1: Absolutely. You know, and you, you know, here's a little fun fact. So, you know, back in, so I went to this company in 1999 and people were just like, are you, crazy like internet advertising what that's nuts no one's ever going to advertise in the internet that's the dumbest thing i've ever heard there are a lot of naysayers and and uh you know here's a trivia question what percent of all ad dollars last year were spent on digital media versus uh traditional media i don't know 70 percent on digital i don't know bingo you nailed it! Oh, I, that was a wild—that was a wild guess. So you're a wild a good, guess. There. You're a good wild guesser. Seventy percent of all ad spend last year was on digital, and in 1999, you know, there were a couple zeros for the decimal place, right? right. So we think about that as the digitization of, I like to, let me take a step back. I like to think about it as the C-suite. You think of a big enterprise and who's in the C-suite. Well, you've got your sales executive, you've got your marketing executive, you got your finance executive, right? you got your tech executive, you got your supply chain executive, HR, a few others, right? So think of that's the C-suite. And then think about the digitization journey for each of those departments in the company. And here's the thing. I was just talking about ad tech. That journey began in around 1997. Okay. So we're kind of 27 years into that journey. The sales department started even earlier. If you remember Salesforce automation, SFA, there was Siebel, right? And then salesforce.com was founded in 1999. So we're about 30 years into that digitization journey of that department. Now let's look in contrast at logistics. Okay. When did you start hearing the term logistics tech?
0: Well, I can say this. I went to a little 3PL that had a cool TMS that they bought from off the shelf. And that was like 08, 09. And I remember when I would show it to prospective customers, they looked at me like I was Steve Jobs. I mean, they would call, be calling people into the room. When I left that company five years later, it was show the same thing. They're like, yeah, yeah, we see this. I, I get it. No ho-hum. Uh, does it do? this does and so it felt like for me 0809 it was still very exciting i don't know when it actually started but it couldn't have started much sooner
1: no that's right and the point is we're much earlier on the digitization journey in logistics and supply chain than almost every other department of the corporation. FinTech, you know, PayPal uh, was started in like 1999, right? And none of us trusted it. Yeah. It just <laughs> means the a lot of the solutions, the companies are younger in the logistics space. There's a lot more confusion out there. You know, there's bankers out there who, have you seen any of those logo charts? They'll say, here's the logistics tech landscape. And they put like 400 logos and they cram it onto one page. And, you know, it looks super confusing because it is. <laughs> I think we've all seen that. Yeah, you know, you're like, which of these companies are real? Which are going to even survive? Who does what? How are the, you know? So there's a lot of that confusion happening. And inside that confusion, though, there are categories that are emerging. Talked about on-demand warehousing, you know, now as we describe it, programmatic logistics is one of those categories. Certainly, digital freight brokerages are are one of the categories that has not only emerged, but it's kind of taking a um, an earlier version of that model, you know, freight brokerage, which has been around for decades. And has operated and provided tons of value to the industry. And there's kind of this new version of it, which is a digital platform. And there are companies, of course, like Uber Freight and Convoy and others that have entered that into and the old
0: guard like the CH Robinson, they spend hundreds of millions of dollars on that on that yep. tech.
1: Yep. So it's fascinating to be part of this journey. You know, we, we got off on this tangent because I was describing my background. Right, but right. That is and was incredibly formative when we caught around to forming Flex because I had for 14 years or something worked to build tech platforms and build up sort of a network driven model. You saw the value of it. So 10 years ago,
0: what did you, I mean, what did you see in the space? What hole did you say and go, oh my God, this is an unaddressed opportunity?
1: I met a guy who became our first customer. And this was at a time where I was thinking about starting another business not in ad tech it was kind of that that had largely consolidated and, and he was he has a bill does a business that's in the wine and cocktails like some martini glasses and cocktail shakers and wine stoppers and all that that category barware and he had a problem he said look here's my problem warehouses are static and my business is very dynamic and what he meant by static was it's long-term lease to long-term lease. And he would fight with his broker to try and get a one-year term on his lease. And you know he'd get laughed at and he'd get countered with a five-year term. And if he was lucky, depending on the conditions in the market, he could get a three-year term. And against his, the practical reality of his business, which was growing very quickly and he was seasonal, it was almost impossible to forecast even one year out, let alone five years out. And so he observed that he was always either long or short on warehousing capacity. And he had a ton of friends of other businesses. And he said, look, everybody's in the same boat because everyone has to sign this lease. And some people have too much space. Some people have not enough space. And he said, look, big companies are long and short of space, just in different geographic markets. And if you could create a way to share capacity and do that. In a way that would be operationally viable, as opposed to just call somebody up and say, hey, can you take you know, some of my inventory? I'll, I'll, I'll spot you some cash in return. You know, you have to do that in a way that's operationally viable and scalable. Um, he said, if you could, you know, I think there's an opportunity there. So we pulled on that thread. We talked to three PLs early on, we talked to some big shippers early on, we looked at the market. The market's massive, as you know, logistics is eight percent of GDP. We felt like warehouses and a network that distributes goods, right? There are warehouses and there are transportation lanes that connect them. Most of the money is spent in the transportation lanes. Like two thirds of the logistics industry is, 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 is transportation. 10% is warehousing. But the bottleneck in the system, the bottleneck is very often the warehouse because it's fixed in time and space. You know, the warehouse is where the warehouse is. You're like, oh my gosh, there's a problem at the port. Can we shift it to another port? Well, we need a warehouse, you know, and are we going to lease a building for three to five years just to shift freight from one port to another? That is the bottleneck. But if you could unlock that bottleneck and make it flexible, you could take a step back and reimagine the entire flow of goods across distribution networks. And so that's the, that's the, that was the inspiration for the business. And it has proved to be very useful.
0: Yeah. So it's interesting. So you said two-thirds of our logistics spend goes to over the road. And by the way, when we talk, if you say logistics, most people right away think over-the-road transportation is the big dog in our space. But we've seen such enormous growth in technologies and the capability in the warehousing and fulfillment space. And it was necessary. The market demanded that we get this. So when you were developing this, you didn't realize at the time that e-commerce was going to become this i knew you knew e-commerce was around 10 years ago but it got a big boost with covid but it was already growing really rapidly and i think what i find is interesting now is we have everybody who's a brand at retail or whatever they say we absolutely need retail locations we also have to be e-commerce and in e-commerce companies now like think about a number of them becoming uh, opening retail locations by the way i have two daughters they buy beds online mattresses and i was like by the way i'm walking distance from my house to three mattress places there's a kid yeah. and there's a conspiracy about mattress companies. I don't know if you guys go, if you look it up online, there's a lot of talk. Why are there so many mattress <laughs> companies? But I went to one so often, I swear to God, they must have thought I was homeless because I would come and land down on all their beds. I don't know how people buy certain things online like mattresses, but it's happening. I'm also, I'm at the far end of the market that they don't care about. The young people are buying mattresses yeah. online.
1: Well, look, I mean, you know, Omnichannel has been it'd be interesting little history fact to look up, but I don't know when that word was created and started to be used. But, it, you know, every company outside of the, you know, SMBs who don't have the resources to, to, to have stores, you know, every company has to be Omnichannel. I think everybody, you know, every company wants to be and most companies would say they are Omnichannel, meaning I want to provide my solutions to the consumer in whatever way they want to consume them. If that's online, it's online. If it's through a store, it's through a store. If it's buy online, pick up in store, bopus. I need to provide that. I need to meet the yes. consumer where they are. And by the way, that consumer, they're not standing still, right? You know, their preferences, their needs, they change. And so as a as a logistics executive, as a supply chain executive, how do you keep up with all that, right? You know, so let's take your your point on e-commerce, right? You know, 10 years ago, yeah, it was a thing. It was absolutely a thing. And by the way, in my past life in, in advertising technology, we saw e-commerce from a front row seat because we were on the front side of the shopping cart, you know, driving traffic to the shopping cart. Somebody converts a sale, we would you know, celebrate. That was our job to help convert sales never once thought about what happened on the other side of the shopping cart. Like how does this stuff actually get delivered?
0: That's where it gets, that's where it t- traditionally got very oh, ugly.
1: Absolutely. Right. The, the, the electrons are the easy part, relatively speaking, all the software that helps you do the stuff. It's actually the protons and neutrons like the physical world is much harder to scale and manage, yeah. which is something we've learned. Yeah. Um, yeah. In, in our business here, but, but, you know, e-commerce, has grown and and it's not only just grown but think about consumer preferences 10 years ago what was the typical consumer's expectation about how fast they should get something when they order online oh yeah it could be a week (laughs) two seven days fine you know and and so what was the catalyst to no longer make that okay it was amazon you know we're Basically, all of us in, in the U.S. are Amazon customers. Most of us are actually prime members. I think it's the law. Yeah, yeah something <laughs> like that. Uh, but it's a great value proposition. It's amazing to identify. Right. And we didn't, maybe some of us didn't even know we needed stuff in one day, but, but Amazon made it possible. And now it's like a, it's one of our sort of given rights that we shake stuff fast. And so the, the, the market has to react. The market has to react because consumers' needs have changed.
0: I would also say that I used to use e-commerce and direct to consumer DTC interchangeably but more and more I'm noticing businesses that you know maybe they are office supplies and they said we do office supplies and they always had a you know a guy who would go out and sell in a, in an area now they're like you know what if people want office supplies they're going to go online and buy them they're probably buying them through Amazon anyway so the, all of a sudden businesses are saying we have to be participating. So I think more and more, we're going to see e-commerce in the
1: B2B space too. Oh yeah. That's, that's a huge part of Amazon's. Growth right now. And there are a lot of other, you know, companies building B2B marketplaces and services as well. But you know, I want to pull on the string a little bit more on the e-commerce and consumer behavior changes, like just expectations for how fast I should get some, right? So when they were slower, what was the supply chain logistics response? It was how many fulfillment centers do you need and where do you put it? It was build a big one right near Indianapolis. That's the answer.
0: Yeah, that was you've got one location at one day from sixty some percent of the population, East Coast and the Midwest. That was
1: it It's growing, so you, so imagine you're the company in 2010, big enterprise company. Like we're gonna we're gonna go big in this inter, in this e-commerce thing because it's now five percent of our sales, and we think it's gonna grow to 15 percent. So you do a, what an eight year, ten year forecast. How fast is is e-commerce gonna grow? And you use that forecast to to say, all right, how big of a building do I need in Indianapolis to meet all the demand I'm gonna have ten years from now? Okay, you come up with it's like a million square feet or something. No more farms in Indiana, guys.
0: <laughs> it's all gonna be warehouses. <laughs>
1: And then you, and then you, you start to work on putting a building in place, right? And you, you, you either build the building or you lease the building, then you, you get your WMS. You decide if you want some sortation, some automation, and, you know, a year or so later, you have this thing live and it, it's now you know twenty thirteen or twenty fourteen or twenty fifteen, and it you you know it's ten percent utilized because you got enough space for the tenth year. So in the first year, you know it's it's only ten percent utilized, you know, and then you grow and it's twenty percent utilized, and then year three or year four, what do you learn? Oh, consumers actually need stuff in two days. OK, so now my my million square footer is 35% utilized, but that's the wrong strategy. Now I need, if I want one day, I need 12 regional fulfillment centers, at least for my fast fill them up. excuse, right? So what do you do? Do you go lease 12 more buildings in 12 markets? And if so, how big are those? Well, what's your forecast? And how confident are you that consumer behavior isn't going to change again over the next five or 10 years? Of course, it's going to change. So this goes back to this incredibly insightful idea or business problem customer problem that was presented to to me when we started this business is like businesses are dynamic and warehouses are static and it's just a bad match and if you felt like the world was all going to stabilize okay we're past covid that'll never happen again you know we're never going to have strikes in the ports we're never going to have any changes in consumer behavior. The world's going to be completely stable for the next 50 years. Then who needs flexibility? But the reality is that's never going to happen. Like just go through the trends now, you know, near shoring or friend shoring. Like, are we going to do that? I think so. That has different, imp- that has implications for a different warehousing network. You go through the rate prices and labor rates. You go through the current capacity situation Warehousing. I mean, this, it never ends. And so because of that, an agile solution helps you create a better, yeah, I just heard from
0: somebody, I won't mention the market because somebody will just shoot right back at me, but a warehousing guy called me and said, yeah, we closed that location. He goes, we had contracts that were based on an hourly rate, and that hourly rate is half of what the market is right now. That was just, and he said, we better drop the business. And he said, no one wants to give you relief. And so they, so we do have changing markets all the time. And I also think, you know, when you say same day, next day, that means I'm going to somehow have to get multiple locations and let's just say I'm very happy with my one location in Indianapolis and then somebody says yeah but you've got to do same day next day oh I'll, I'll reach out to a warehousing company in California or somewhere out west Texas wherever the problem is now I've got my systems I've got one warehousing company in Indiana and another in California and somebody says well we're actually going have to have to add a few more it, it breaks you can't connect easily unless you say I'll send you a download out of our order management system and you can data entry into your whatever you mess. it's it's a it can't
1: work. It doesn't scale. It doesn't scale. So look, you know the broader context here is the three PL industry. There are hundreds of great three PLs out there. It is a very fragmented industry. There are thousands of three PLs from the very largest. And when you say three PLs, you mean the the warehousing guys? Yes, warehousing side, and many of them also do transportation. As you're well aware, but you know from the very largest folks like DHL, Geotus. GXO, some of the best, most sophisticated, largest lineage, yep. Through, you know, hundreds of regional operators that may have one or multiple campuses, you know, five to 10 plus buildings. And then there's hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands of single site, small, free fields. So it's very fragmented. And then the WMSs out there, I mean, you talked about earlier, a a lot of them, you know, don't use WMSs still. But even those who do, there are, hundreds of WMS. So it's a very fragmented physical marketplace and it's a very fragmented technical landscape. And therein lies the problem is, uh, you, and you just described it, if you're a customer who needs multiple sites without a singular platform, it's a problem to scale and and build high quality operation. And thus there is a need for a singular tech platform that can become kind of part of an, almost like an operating system underlay for the market. Yep. And you know, you mentioned the
0: onesie twosie nature of the business. And again, I I, I quoted some to you before we hit record. Guys, if somebody has stats on this, please send it to me. But I heard that 50% of all warehousing companies have one location, which makes sense to me. And the problem is how do we connect them? But also they have a problem. And I've heard them, they've called me about this, saying, I wanna develop a network. So I can, I'm in Chicago and I wanna get business, but I also need somebody with West Coast operations Texas location. And so they were looking to see, how do we connect? And they said, if we all use the same WMS. Well, so they're in a jam too, in that they are cut out. If somebody says we've always done e-commerce, we're really good at it, but we have one location. I'm shut out. I don't have the opportunity to work with the big dogs unless I partner with someone like you who says, yeah, we're going to take what you got and we're going to supplement you with the rest of our network. And we'll use your expertise, your location, your tribal knowledge of this business and that the, the local market knowledge that we'll never have except your data. And it's a great partnership. Yeah. And by the way, I always say it's the same way with the transportation logistics company. I mean, the, um, Freight brokers, you owe it to your carriers. Right your partner carriers to bring them great business. And you owe it to your other customer, the the shipper, to bring them great carriers. If you don't do both, you don't get to play.
1: <laughs> that's right. And that's the, that's the very similar dynamic we have in our business. You know, we have been at this for many years and yes. we have an amazing portfolio of some of the biggest and best companies in the world, which continues to grow very rapidly. And so, and we have an amazing sales team that's out there solving problems and generating more business through our customers in our, in our new prospect. So the relationship we have with our warehouse operator network is, Hey, you know, we, we will roll in and say, Hey, do you want to work with company X? You know, one of the top five retailers in the world.
0: And they know that company. Yeah. You mentioned it offline, a few of the companies you work with and you work with the biggest companies out there. Yeah. And these yeah. are all, these are businesses that I, as a, one location guy doesn't usually get access to anymore.
1: That's right. That's exactly right. And so, but through Flex, you can. And so we bring you customers again, if you're a qualified partner of ours, and particularly if you have a demonstrated high quality track record with us, because remember all of our partners use our technology. So we have the ability to, to understand everybody's quality metrics. And so we have partners that are many partners that are great operators and they build confidence with us. And therefore we have Confidence that they will serve our customers really well through our partnership, right? So we'll show up and say, hey do you want to work with big Company X? And by the way, you know there's no commission you got to pay for that. It's just like here's a free customer and and here's the technology also for free, the Flex platform to serve that customer. This is a sales channel. and by the way, it's already integrated with the customers. There's no integration that has to that has to happen. because it's already been integrated. There's no commission, you know, do what you do, serve the customer well through our partnership and we will grow with you. And it's a really strong value proposition. and, And we have a bunch of partners who really lean in. Yeah.
0: I have recommended, there was a company that I know of that down in lower Midwest and they called me and they said, Hey, we're just getting started. We've always had warehousing for our own business, but now we're kind of have another warehouse. And I said, they said, we we need to just grow up and blah, blah, blah. I said, I don't know if they're you're ready for it. I said, I'd call Flex right now because what you can learn with them. I said, I don't know what they're, uh, I'm sure they have high standards, but I said, it's better than having to go and grow on your own and learn everything on your own. And again, am I right to also say that e-commerce business is better business than, than some traditional warehousing businesses?
1: You know, I don't know that it's better. In some dimensions, it is. It's different. That's the key thing is it's different. It's it's faster. faster. Look, <laughs> it, it typically turns faster, but not always. You know, there's slow-moving SKUs, Cs and Ds, just like there are slow-moving pallets. There are fast-moving pallets. If it's sitting, you know, right outside the, you know, think of manufacturing plant for a big consumer products company, you know, there are pallets, but they are flowing. They're not sitting, right? And and so, you know, we provide omni-channel solutions. So from bulk pallets, we call them capacity programs to distribution programs. So this is, you know, case level, either distribute to, to replenish stores or inbound to a DC or wholesale to retail. And then we provide e-commerce fulfillment. So each picking and it's all it's all important business to the customer. It's all good business. And, and they have unique properties, which means the tech has to be able to handle all the different versions and the network has to handle all the different different versions. Some operators aren't great with e-commerce fulfillment or their building is just in the wrong place. So there are different operators that match differently to the different solutions that customers need as well. Right. So do you guys say how many
0: locations you currently have online or is that? Not-
1: we have we have hundreds of 3PL partners. Um, and, so you've got, say, the um,
0: next day covered for yeah. this. Now, are you just
1: in the U.S. right now? We're in the
0: U.S. and Canada. Now, same day, next day is harder in Canada, isn't it?
1: Uh, uh, it is in some ways, you know, and, <laughs> and look, I'll be honest, we don't have tons of demand for same day from customers. We have customers who are- Yeah, I, I seldom
0: need that My, I, I, I never want that for the most part. I'll just go to the store usually if I want it. You know, it's a
1: niche at this point. There are certain businesses, certain models. You know, even Amazon is is kind of backed off from it a little bit. And with- I don't but- like
0: it from a sustainability perspective. So I can see a lot of companies saying, hey, you know what, we're trying to re- reduce our greenhouse gases. So why am I sending, you know, a sweatshirt to your house that you're not gonna wear till Saturday, right?
1: That's right. The next day, we see that continuing, the demand for that continuing to increase. And I think, again, you can just point back to Amazon and they're really putting the pedal down on on next day and, and offering more and more SKUs in their catalog next day. And they're training us consumers to sort of have that expectation. And so other companies need to try and- So and,
0: and you have hundreds of locations, which means you got that. So if somebody needs same day, yes, you can do it. Whichever way it goes, you guys will serve it, but I don't think it's personally going to become necessary for most shipments.
1: I would agree that and look even the final miles just think about final mile for same day it's different right you know it's not the, the, the next day is typically you know ups if you're you're near the sort center that just can happen ups FedEx the sort of typical scaled carriers but if you want same day you know then you're getting into uber and doorDash and it's a different set of final mile carriers and that creates its own additional layer of, of complexity as well.
0: I wanna ask you a few things. I keep looking at the clock. I know every time I talk to a CEO, I'm gonna lose him quickly. First, I wanna hear your, just your two cents on that Silicon Valley bank that failed. And then I wanna hear about your fundraising, which you guys did in, in July. What's the significance of that?
1: Yeah, boy, Silicon Valley bank, didn't see that coming. I don't think anybody, I mean, maybe there are a couple of guys who had a short position who did. Another example of something very unexpected happening <laughs> and, uh, you know, the world responds. Expect
0: the unexpected, I guess.
1: Yeah, expect the unexpected. You know, I think, you know, thankfully we as a business weren't affected by it. Yeah, I mean,
0: I don't have any sort of pearls of wisdom. Someone I was supposed to interview the other day had their payroll in there, so they had to scramble and I'm I'm sure they're fine, but it's just, uh, that's a, a real challenge. So you raised money in July. Talk a little bit about that.
1: Sure. We raised our Series D and $119 million. We added some great new investors or some of our largest investors are now. BlackRock, who's actually the largest investment company in the world, Hero Price, Tiger, Redpoint activate, we have some just great investors. So we're very pleased with that. You know, the capital markets started to get pretty tough at the beginning of last year. We raised in the middle of last year, had a great outcome. And it was just simply because the business has been performing so well. The market is so big and the need is so strong. So pretty we're pretty fired up about the road ahead. We're well capitalized to be able to keep you know solving more and more of our customers' problems.
0: Yep. I think we have a lot of tech companies and I, I, I don't I don't know if it's appropriate. I guess you guys are a tech company because yeah, we don't, that's don't have your technology, hair. but that's what powers the business Right. We're seeing a lot of companies that are earlier on going to struggle with the next round of funding. You're going to have to become profitable. But usually we talk about seed round. That's real early just trying this out. And then we have A, B, C, D. What When you get a D round, what is that money? What's the expectation? Is that just more scaling? Or is there a Series E? I've never heard somebody say Series E.
1: Oh yeah. EFG. I mean, they can keep going. If, you know, why do you have to keep raising money? You have to keep raising money if if you can't get to, or don't want to get to profitability. In other words, if you'd rather invest dollars for ahead of growth or invest in a way that gets you to profitability, we're in that latter camp. You know, so why do we raise a series D it's to continue to add to our product team so that we can build out this, this platform, which at the core of which is WMS, but there's also an intelligence and analytics layer on top to help our customers figure out how to optimize the flow of, goods across their distribution networks and and other things. So we want to keep investing in the the logistics platform and growing our team to support. You know, our business grew 120% last year. We are adding staff to keep up with that, (laughs) even while we are driving towards profitability as a business.
0: Yeah, I interviewed Ben Gordon last week and I published that. And one of the things he brought up, he showed a chart out. I will put the video clips out, but he showed a chart about Amazon and their stock price. And what was interesting is it, when he brought it up, I was like, remember how long it was that Amazon made no money? And they were to some, there was so much debate about they will never, ever make money. It is never going to be a good business. They they were going to revolutionize business world, but it's nothing. Remember, you you heard the same things I did. Oh. I remember. I live in Seattle. It was like a daily conversation. Yeah, yeah. and and here we are. When you hit times like this, everyone starts looking and saying, well, who's profitable? Who's profitable? But I think it's also who can can grow during this time. And I also know this, we don't have COVID at our, the wind at our back, which is a funny way to say it because COVID was horrible, but it was good for the e-commerce businesses this year. I think the way to win business is going to be taking it from your rivals, not
1: so much the growth of the market. Yeah, Yeah, and... You know, if if e-commerce growth is moderating, which is certainly what we see and what most of our customers have seen, certainly relative to COVID, you know, more share of of consumer buying is happening in or through stores. So that's a growth area. So take BOPUS, buy online, pick up a You don't care how it works. (laughs) Well, I mean, as long as we care in the sense that, if that, you know, if, if our customers have a new need, like, hey, I have to replenish my retail stores faster because BOPUS is working really well and I'm stocking out my store shelves because people are buying online and picking up in store, we can help with that. Great, let's replenish your store two, three times a week instead of once a week.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna th- just tell you, this is n- me and again, I'm, I'm getting too old for anyone to care about my personal preferences at the store. But my feeling is I like getting certain stuff sent to the house. Other times, if I go to a store, I think we all enjoy a store experience. And so if I can go to like a farmer's market and you walk through, you are like, this is fun. I like this. I like the unusual things you might see there or a nice boutique where you're like, they got prepared foods or something that you really love. Those are experiences. And since we all work from home, a lot of us, it's nice to have those experiences. Other stuff, you go, yeah, I bought new towels, just sent them in the house. I don't need an experience to buy a towel or new spoons or something. This is just my two cents. I think we're going to see certain stores get smaller footprint. And I use Best Buy as an example. Uh, when I go to Best Buy, I buy all my tech there. I don't care if they have it in the store as long as there's a demo and they always say, yeah, okay, we'll ship it to your house. It'll be there tomorrow or the next day. Fine. And so they ha- they can carry less inventory and their inventory is as perishable as bananas, right? <laughs> if, they, if that laptop sits on the shelf for six months, they got to throw it out. <laughs> so I think we're going to we're gonna figure out what what's what let me ask two questions. Who's the sweet spot for you in terms of warehousing partners? And then who's the sweet spot for Flex when it comes to customers?
1: Yep. For warehousing partners, we work with the big global contract logistics companies and the regional size players. Those are probably the sweet spots for us. You know, typically fairly sophisticated, either very sophisticated or fairly sophisticated. Again, our customers have very high standards. You need expertise. You need some scope. Yep. And... You know, we do work with some smaller 3PLs too, and, and there are some great ones out there. So we do cover the whole range. I'd say, you know, Sweet Spot probably indexes to regional and larger. On the customer side, as I said, we work with the, the Global 1000. We have six, maybe seven now of the top 10 retailers, four of the top five products. We're oh, also wow. in Food & Bev vertical and industrial manufacturing vertical. So you get a new cold chain? Yeah, we do. We do already. You know, actually our, our fastest growing vertical is industrial manufacturing. Because it turns out that even in some you know what many people from the outside or armchair quarterback would say that's more of a stable business you know uh, there's a lot of dynamics happening in industrial manufacturing business as well again you know pretty much always so the need for agility is is super high in some of those markets as well
0: yeah i can tell you i'm i'm a automotive guy and i did do uh, as a lean consultant i would go look at supply chains automotive supply chains and so it was usually chrysler's tier ones and we would go all the way back and by the way they have t- tons of tier twos and the tier ones are billion dollar companies but was when we kind of put the whole map the value stream map up first thing you do is you circle in red the warehouses and i wouldn't i was never quite this brash but other people would say we're getting rid of all of these warehouses because what they were looked at is You're inefficient, you're not, you don't have the proper flow and you are keeping a whole bunch of buffer stock, but automotive parts change like that. They're constant changes. So it's easy for them to say, obsolete those parts, millions of them. When I launched cars in Thailand, I remember wire harnesses, which are notorious for just always going obsolete or having to be reworked. Everything I was shipping to China or to Thailand went obsolete on the ocean. So you do have real, real problems with keeping the right stuff (laughs) and anything coming from China or coming from Europe has to go in a warehouse here. Because you can't do just in time in your factory with
1: ocean and the port involved. I mean, here's the thing. I did a webinar with this woman called Annie Duke just a week or so ago. She's a professional poker player. Okay. And also studied behavioral psychology. So she's a brilliant PhD who- I bet she's a really good poker player. (laughs) I laid that into a professional poker player. She was actually, I don't know, top- 10 or top 20 professional poker players. Probably
0: the best paid behavioral scientist you know. <laughs> Maybe. And
1: she's written some amazing books since then about decision-making, right? Think about her perspective on decision-making. She's a behavioral psychologist, so she knows kind of how her brains work and, and, and sociologically or, you know, from a uh, social science perspective. And she's sat at, you know, thousands of poker tables making decisions every, you know, 20 seconds. So she's written some great books. All that's a lead into this point. Uh, you're talking about, you know, Tier one automotive suppliers, tier two, that whole network and and you know, looking at warehouses as waste because we have a forecast and we're gonna have just in time. We as humans constantly overestimate our ability. To be right. We we do a bunch of analysis and we convince ourselves that we're right. Instead of taking a step back and thinking, you know, do all the best analysis you can and then take a step back and ask yourself, well, how unsure am I? What is the error rate around my forecast? And if you can be really honest and clear-headed about that, you'll make better decisions, right? You will contingency plan, you will plan. For some buffer, you will plan to create some agility in your system, and uh, it's amazing that there's a there's a link to that webinar on our website. I highly recommend that, or just buy her books.
0: Give me that link. Put it in the sh- I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, we'll do that. One thing we we talked you talked about who you work with the warehousing company. So you work with some smaller ones, but you're working with a lot of regional guys, and you're working with even the global companies who have a lot of expertise, a lot of no doubt, a lot of locations, do you vet them? How do you how do you know that that's a good warehousing company that you can partner
1: with? Yeah, we absolutely vet them. You know, we have a whole team, we call them our, our network development team, and they are our warehouse partner facing folks who whose job is to go find new partners, vet them, build relationships and nurture our existing partners, grow those partnerships, particularly with the best ones, right? And so we're constantly adding to the network to support our growth. We're constantly growing our existing partnerships you know, working together to make sure that there's value in it for them, there's value in it for our customers and Flex. And when those those things are true, it's it's up and to the right. That's where the growth happens. But we absolutely vet them. And then even, even sort of more important, I think, than vetting is once they're operating, they're using the tech. And so it's not more important, but equally as important, you know, there's just a constant stream of data that shows, you know, hey, are they hitting the SLA or not? Or is something gone You know, a little bit sideways. And that's where that third component of our solution, that operations team that we have, the control team, can step in and get ahead of some of these things, help with a training gap or help just with a troubleshooting gap or whatever it might be to ensure the quality is there.
0: Right. And I might, I've said this many times lately on my podcast, but it's very true. Let's just say right now, a very large company says, Hey, we need to reconsider, you know, our, what warehouses we use and our solution. And they've been using somebody for 10, 15 years. And somebody says, well, we we, how do we go about picking a new one? Well, I guess we Google online. I guess we could go look around. But you guys can pick your operations team can say, we'll help you pick. They are doing it every day. But on top of that, they are a layer of of safety in that. And I don't think this happens very often because you do vet them and you do work with them. But at some point, if something goes wrong with one of your warehouses, you're like, yeah, we have four other warehouses in la don't worry we're gonna move that over and that company that experienced trouble the you know the owner died or change of whatever change of circumstance and so you guys pick new 3pls and vet them every day and measure them every day and talk to them every day so if i had to pick On my own, I go, well, I've got a nice little checklist that I developed of what I want from my warehousing 3PL, but I haven't done it in 10 years. I don't have anyone on my team who's done it in 10 years. And that's a problem. That's
1: right. We do it every single day and we're collecting data every single day on what uh, operator's are bidding, what their operational quality is uh, in not only major markets, but secondary and tertiary physical markets. I mean, we have massive amounts of data and and frankly, you know, a bunch of our big customers, that's one of the top sort of three sources of value that they see in Flex is uh, often their purchasing department requires, uh, procurement requires multiple bids. Because you guys are, you are a procurement company, right? If you want to, so you'll get paid. Bring three different options. We'll bring five different options uh, to you, and that alone is 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 valuable, separate and apart from operational delivery.
0: When I was still the COO of a logistics company, I used to we had carrier scorecards, and we would share our carrier scorecard. We did mostly less than truckload with our customers, and we say we're assessing our the carriers that we picked. Granted, it's our fault if one of these carriers fall down because we did pick them, but If there was a consistent fall down in certain lanes, we would look and say, let us look around and see if we can't find a better solution for that lane that they can't seem to handle for whatever reason. And I'm sure you guys have a lot more sophisticated than just a carrier scorecard, but it's it's what you do is you're always assessing and saying, hey, well, these are great partners,
1: or uh, or we're gonna ref- or we're gonna reform them, or uh, they won't be a partner. That's right. Look, it's it's service quality, but then it's also pricing. You know, again, w- when when a business is changing a lot, I'll take an example. You know, just from very recently, like warehouse prices right now are at historic high. You know, to lease a building, it, it's never been more expensive to lease a warehouse than it is right now. Although I think in the last month or two, it barely started to tick down. The vacancy rates are the lowest they've ever been. Prices are the highest they've ever. Government in general right but you know what there are inland markets uh, that aren't as full so if you have the ability if you want to shift freight from you know a west coast port to an east coast port but you know warehousing in savannah is super expensive well, what if you looked inland you know could you dray it an extra 100 miles and find warehousing that's you know 30 40% less the answer is actually yes and so we can help you find those other solutions to still cost optimize as well as you know speed and quality optimize I think we're going to be changing some of our class A
0: buildings into warehouses soon. (laughs) (laughs) As uh, the the building boom didn't realize we were going to have COVID. So let's (laughs) wrap this bad boy up. I like to interview smart, interesting people like you, Carl. Who else should I interview on my
1: podcast? I'm going to recommend Michael Bender. Michael Bender. Who is he? So Michael has recently joined our board. An amazing uh, operations and supply chain executive. Decades of experience at Pepsi, Victoria Secret, Cardinal. He was the COO of Walmart. Excellent. Uh, he sits on a couple boards. Oh, He's a great that. executive and a super fascinating, very smart person.
0: Excellent. So what I'll do is I'll reach out to Michael and you might have to connect me uh, via email. There's a lot of Michael Benders on LinkedIn. I can guarantee that. What I'll do is I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile and a link to to your website and any other links you and your marketing team give me. And then I'll also put a link to, you said you were in a webinar with- Any dude. Annie Duke. Yep. Yeah, please send me that. I'll put those in the show notes because I think that'd be interesting to hear you talk to her. What
1: conferences will we see you guys at? We are going to be at Gartner. When and where is that? I haven't heard that one lately. Gartner Symposium. I don't know off the top of my head, to be honest. Uh, it's That's all right. It's warm. And then CSCMP, we will be there as well. Nice. And look forward to seeing lots of folks there that-, that Traffic has picked up at Rela and at Manifest, as you were talking about earlier. Yes, yes. Manifest is in Manifest is the same week as the Super Bowl
0: next year, so you don't want to miss that. And 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 the Super Bowl is in Las Vegas next year. And from what I hear, the Lions are going to be there. We've been assured that. (laughs) (laughs) Why Why not? I really appreciate you taking the time. I love what you guys have done. I think you guys have transformed a space like few others. I mean, it's a brand new business model that we desperately needed, and didn't know we needed until you did it. Yeah,
1: it's been been a thrill. So much more to do. So we're pretty excited. Well, thanks again. I really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure, Joe. It's great to meet you.
0: Yep, same. And uh, thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, Onward and Upward.